podcast number three. Here we go. The general speech episode three. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for thanks for joining me um, on this uh, on this vanity project. Um, I I'm I'm glad to be doing something which is kind of fun and through which I'm learning a lot and uh, having interesting conversations with interesting people. Um, and even more glad that that's got an audience and that the audience occasionally sends me nice messages to tell me that they listen to it and in doing so massages my ego. So thanks very much. Um, this episode is a bit of a departure from the previous two, um, just in the sense that uh, with the previous two episodes with uh, Raul and with James, those guys were friends. Those guys were people who I've known for a long time. Uh, this conversation is with somebody who I met for the first time recording this podcast. So we were put in touch by a, a mutual friend um, and I wanted to get this person on the show to talk about her area of expertise. And her area of expertise is sex. This is the after dark episode of the general speech in which we talk about mucky things like sex and fancying people and desire. Um, we use uh, graphic language like uh, intercourse. At one point, the word clitoral hood is mentioned. So if that's the kind of language that offends you or that upsets you, this might not be the show for you. Um, uh, I was going to say, maybe don't listen to this with your kids, but I've just mentioned the word clitoral hood. So if you are, <laughs> if you are listening to it with your kids and they're asking you what that means, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, guys. Um, any kids who are listening, um, it's fine. It's normal. It's natural. It's healthy. There's nothing weird about it. Um, so I wanted to do an episode that uh, focused on issues around sex and sexual desire. Um, and really, that was almost the it was that kind of thinking that led me to starting this podcast is um, through my own therapy, my own journey kind of into religion and then taking a sideways step kind of not out of religion but looking at it in a slightly different way or experiencing it in a new way one of the things that came up often was uh what we do with uh kind of sexual desire um and and yeah and sexuality i suppose um religion in my experience has a pretty messed up relationship with all of that stuff um it's got a relationship which I would say is possibly defined by fear rather than by love and compassion and by faith. Um, and so I wanted to talk about this stuff. I wanted to talk about, um, you know, the, the realities of sex and sexual desire with somebody who knew what they were talking about. So this is a conversation um, with Devika Chowdhury. Uh, who, like I say, I'd never met until we recorded this episode. Devika is a sex therapist um, based here in Essex, where I live. Um, and we have a mutual friend who uh, works in kind of um, hospital-based chaplaincy. And I had asked that mutual friend whether they knew of anybody who was kind of an expert in this area. And the mutual friends put me in touch with Devika. And I'm so glad that she did um, because I loved, I loved talking to Devika. I, we, uh, from my perspective, had a great time. It's a, it's a fun conversation. It's quite lighthearted throughout, but it talks about some real serious um, things, things that have the, the potential to change people's lives. I'm not saying this podcast has the potential to change people's lives. I'm not saying the topics that we covered are important enough that they can, they can make or break a person. Um, so it was, a, it was a conversation I really, really enjoyed. Um, and I hope at some point to have Devika back on. I'd love to maybe once the, once we're allowed to socialize in normal ways again, um, to, to have another conversation with her for the podcast, maybe face to face. This was done over the internet, um, as all of these have been so far. And on that note, I need to tell you, uh, there are some technical difficulties recording this episode. I've figured out what the technical difficulties were. It was a wiring problem on my end. 
but it means that my side of the conversation the audio sounds like shit um i yeah uh, and unfortunately there's nothing i could do to fix it because i only found out about it after it was recorded so the only thing i could have done would have been to ask devika to come back and record the whole thing again which i didn't want to do so i'm afraid that um devika is crystal clear which is great but i am uh you'll potentially at some point struggle to hear me a little bit which is doubly annoying because i've got this really nice microphone and audio setup which i paid quite a lot of money for um and i'm the one who who kind of whose side of the conversation is all messed up whatever it is what it is uh hopefully you'll hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction um so i hope you enjoy this conversation thanks again for being here um and as ever you know it's great to hear feedback it's great to hear when people are listening so so i i'd I'd love to get a message from you guys just to let me know your thoughts and also i'm conscious that at some point i might run out of steam in terms of having guests to interview um i mean that it'd be great to go back and talk to people again to raul to james to devika um but if you have people or you know people who you think would be interesting guests on this podcast who are kind of interested in some of the areas that we've talked about about where kind of religion intersects with life um uh, it would be great to hear from you i'm really up for any kind of recommendations uh, at the moment what i would say is please don't message me and say hey can i be on your podcast um because that puts me in an awkward position um, because if the answer is no i don't want to have to do that so message me with suggestions of people who you know um but maybe don't message me asking if you yourself can be on it does that sound, do i sound like a dick maybe i sound like a dick saying that um well, whatever. I think it's true. I think it is just kind of a, a, maybe an awkward thing to to have that conversation with friends. Um, so I'm sorry if I sound like a dick. I don't mean to. And I love you. And I'd love to have these conversations with you uh, anytime. Um, where am I going? Wrap it up, Tim. Here's Devika. my first year I did psychology with Spanish and um, I really enjoyed um, learning Spanish and I love the country it's my favorite country um, so I really wanted to learn more about the language and the literature and and kind of the history um, but I wasn't doing very well in the subject because I'm not very good at it so <laughs> <laughs> after my first year I decided to drop that and I took up counseling Um, So my degree is actually in psychology with counselling and it was the best decision I ever made. Um, I absolutely just loved the counselling work. It it just spoke to me so clearly. I always struggled academically at school and so to to be studying something that I actually felt like I understood and I was Mm. good at it was amazing. I Yeah, I just fell in love with it and I knew it was what I wanted to do immediately. That's really cool. Yeah, it was. Um, so, uh, so you ended up studying counselling at uni, yeah. and then, and now you've. Am I right in thinking that that you've just finished studying to be a sex therapist? Is that right? So, is that on top of the counselling degree? Yeah. So, um, so when I finished my degree at Roehampton, I actually went on to do a um, postgraduate certificate at Regents College. Um, in integrative psychotherapy so that's just a a type of psychotherapy which draws from a lot of different theories um so what I like about it is it's kind of you deliver the therapy based on the the person who's in front of you Mm -hmm. and what they'll respond best to okay Um, okay. so it's a bit more um tailored to the client which is what I really liked about it so I, I did that for a year. Um, and again, I, I really, really loved that. And it just, ev- everything I did was kind of a driver to the next stage. And and so after I did that, I was kind of deciding what to do next. And it was kind of my two options were to do a, a general degree, a kind of a master's degree, if you like, that would then qualify me to practice or to specialise And the thing with counselling and psychotherapy is that the career pathway isn't very straightforward. It's a little bit higgledy-piggledy. 
Um, so you kind of, um, there are lots of different ways that you be- can become a therapist. So I was kind of thinking about, well, I could do something general and then specialise, but then I could specialise and then do something general. And I kind of felt a bit lost. So I took a few years out of studying to work um, and just decide what type of therapist I wanted to be. And also, I was very young compared to a lot of my um, peers. Many people go into psychotherapy as a second career choice later in life. Okay. Um, whereas I was kind of going straight into it. So I was often one of the youngest in my classes. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to gain a bit of life experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately what I decided to do was just specialise because I realised that I kind of had this superpower um, that I was able to talk about these really, really difficult and sensitive topics with people and make them feel at ease or allow them to feel at ease sharing Uh, really difficult things with me and I decided that I should kind of um what I wanted to do was really honor that and develop that part of myself and kind of use it for for good and helping people that's a superpower you could definitely use for evil if you wanted to I could I definitely could (laughs) but sadly that's just nowhere in my nature (laughs) good no that's a good thing Even when I try to be mean, it's very, people laugh at me when I try to be angry (laughs) or mean. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) But part of the reason I have this superpower is because my mum is actually a sex and relationship therapist. Yeah. Um, So kind of when I was growing up, she was, she was studying, we actually did the same course. She did it 18 years ago. Oh, no way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, we are their first mother-daughter duo um, to did, have taken that course. That's amazing. And that, that it, it's, um, did you see that show on Netflix, Sex Education? Uh, yes, I did. It was fabulous. Is that, is that what your life was like growing <laughs> up? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and actually, we did um, we did an um, interview uh, for a newspaper. I want to say the Metro or the Sun. The Sun. I think it was the Sun. Um, about that and what it was like growing up with a mum as a sex therapist. Wow, wow, but, um, cool. Yeah. And what was it like? <laughs> interesting, very interesting, <laughs> unusual. Um, so one of the stories I shared in the interview was about um, one weekend I had a friend come over to kind of help me tidy my room because I was notoriously a messy teenager. And um, as we were tidying up, we just kept finding – um, like condoms and packets of lube everywhere, like hidden in every nook and cranny. And we ended up kind of putting them all in this one, like, uh, you know, a quality street tin. Okay. And um, <laughs> by the end, we counted them all up and there was like 50 of them. Wow. And basically what had been happening was every birthday, Christmas, whatever opportunity my mum had, She'd give me a present, but put inside my present a couple of condoms and a packet of lube. No way, really. <laughs> so I was just constantly receiving this stream of of protection. Wow. <laughs> but I was a virgin at the time, so I wasn't using any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just accumulating <laughs> all of this um yeah paraphernalia so my friend was like this is crazy I was like I know (laughs) that's so I mean that's so like it's interesting because it's so so like I mean I guess it's unusual by anybody's standards but compared to the upbringing uh that I had in like a like a a religious household and a relatively conservative household like Mm. I I'm trying to think if I ever remember talking to my parents about sex. I'm sure we must have, but I don't really remember it. The only conversation I can remember having with uh, my dad about sex was we were on a family camping holiday and I must have been like, I think it was when we were living in America. So I'm, I, I can't have been older than like 10 or 11 years old. Um, and my dad took me to have kind of the talk um, so we walked along the beach, um, but basically the talk Sounds was kind quite of romantic. It well, yeah. It, I mean, as as far as locations to talk to your dad about sex are, I guess on a moonlit beach. I don't know. I don't know if that <laughs> makes it better or worse. <laughs> it is what it is. 
yeah. Um, but the talk was really like, I mean, my parents are, are, are much more liberal and open-minded now, but at the time they were really kind of embedded in that kind of uh, American brand of evangelical Christianity. And so the talk was really um, my dad saying, just, just don't do it. <laughs> Basically, it was, it was kind of like it was very much in the context of like, you know, let's, it, it's a thing that's best kept for marriage. Um, and uh, yeah, ju- just just try not to do it, basically, which I think um, if, you know, if my dad were listening to this podcast, and I assume he probably will, mm-hmm. I, I think he probably wouldn't recognize himself in that anecdote, because he's changed so much since mm-hmm. in that time. But that's a that's a kind of uh, yeah, that's that's my main memory of talking to my parents about sex. So compared to your mom, who's leaving condoms and lubes in your birthday present every year, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty pretty poles apart. And I think it's actually really interesting as well. The older you get, the way your relationship with your parents changes, and you you develop um, a bit more of a friendship alongside that parent child relationship, and mm. it does open up how human they are actually and yeah. it can enable some of those conversations to happen later in life and it and what's really not irritating but just a fact of life is that they would have been so beneficial <laughs> earlier yeah. on um, yeah. I guess I'm quite lucky to have had had kind of that friendship um with my mum quite early on and actually when I when I did eventually lose my virginity I actually told my mum and my grandma was visiting from India at the time I told them both at the same time wow and how was that yeah absolutely fine I kind of I I knew I wanted to tell them I was quite excited to tell them and I was really glad my grandma was there so I could tell her as well because I felt quite proud of it um, and I think they were very excited. And I just remember my grandma saying, oh, doesn't it burn when you wee afterwards? And I was like, yes, <laughs> nobody tells you about that. <laughs> That's incredible. That's really, I mean, uh, so um, I like, I'm completely like ignorant uh, about uh, India or even Asia. I've never even been to that part of the world. But my, I guess, stereotypically informed view of India is that it's a more conservative culture than ours over here. So when you talked about your Indian grandmother being there, my my image of her was of quite quite a conservative person. Um, but clearly, that's not the case. Um, the fact that you could talk with her in that way, that's, that's amazing. It is amazing. And I think I'm quite lucky. I have a very... Um, forward um thinking progressive I would say quite rebellious family um and and that can be really difficult for my grandparents sometimes uh culturally kind of balancing what what their lives are like in India with what our lives are like here um and and India is a really fascinating country in that context as well because you've got you know, kind of the, the concept of the arranged marriage and, and the love marriage, but also it's the mm. birthplace of tantric sex. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and yeah. there are temples devoted to um, to sex and pleasure. Um, so it, it's a really fascinating country, actually. When you when you look at that, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm trying. So I don't. Th- uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly, um, so I lost my virginity quite late in life. Uh, like it was, it was only kind of as I started to shed that kind of conservative religious baggage. So I was, I was well into my adult, uh, into adulthood when, when I eventually, uh, had sex. Um, and the idea of talking to my parents about it would have felt so like I wouldn't have dreamed of, and, and like, I can remember my parents coming to visit uh, where I was living at the time and they knew I was in a long-term relationship. Um, And my dad said, like asked whether he could have a nap on my bed before they left. And just the fact that I had at the time uh, a pretty big double bed, um, there was a little part of me that was slightly self-conscious that was like, oh man, they're probably going to put two and two together and realize that I'm having sex, <laughs> which is such a weird thought because like they they wouldn't have, by that stage, they would have probably been quite happy to know I was having sex, to be honest. They'd have probably been quite happy to know that they hadn't completely fucked me up. <laughs> um, uh, and I didn't have any like 
uh, like moral issues with that anymore. I'd kind of put those behind me, but still the idea of talking about that with my parents, with my family, I mean, really with, yeah, I can't think of many people who I would have been comfortable having that kind of conversation with. Um, No, and that's something I actually, I do talk with clients about um, a fair amount. So particularly when we get towards the end of, of working together, I do tend to ask them, you know, so who who is your support network moving forwards? You know, if something comes up, if something goes wrong, you need someone to talk to and you don't want to talk to the other person. You need to kind of offload or talk it through with someone, you know, get your thoughts in order. You can't call me. You're not going to have a session next week. Um, where are you going to go? So I do um, encourage people to kind of pick one friend they trust or one family member that they trust um, and kind of consider um, just you don't have to tell them everything, but just begin having a bit of that conversation. So you've got somewhere to go um, and have that conversation and not feel ashamed and not feel scared of being judged um, and just know that someone's got your back, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It is a really hard thing for people to talk about. It is. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, um, when I look back on growing up in kind of Christian youth groups and that kind of thing, that's one of the things that I am really so critical about, um, now because we, we never ever spoke about sex in that context or, or rather when we did, it was in the context again of like, well, we know that this is a bad thing and not to do it. Um, Mm. and, I can remember having um, sessions with youth workers and that kind of stuff, which were like, okay, we're going to split the boys up from the girls and we're going to have conversations with them about sex. uh, And, and, you know, let's be really real and frank about it and that kind of stuff. But again, the the gist of the conversation was always don't do it. And, and here's how not to do it. Um, So there wasn't any kind of, what am I trying to say? There wasn't like, I, I never from in that context received an education about how to have sex safely and how to even, and, and, and I mean, just as importantly, how to be respectful towards a sexual partner and okay. how to talk to somebody who you're with about what they like and what they don't like and what you Absolutely. like and what you don't like, because it was just a kind of sex was just one thing which we knew we weren't supposed to do. Um, so all of us had guilt about it all the time because we all wanted to have sex. We all had normal urges. We were all looking at porn like all of the time and then beating ourselves up because porn was a bad thing. But mm. we, we, like, we had those urges that like we, oh man, I, I imagine it must be amazing. It must be the best thing in the world. And actually that's the other thing about like not not talking about it or, or only talking about it as a kind of, in kind of taboo way blows it completely out of proportion that like I remember when I eventually did have sex kind of it being like yeah I mean that was great but my life hasn't changed I I woke up the next day and I was still the same person um and really nothing had changed apart from I had done this thing the night before um but when you like say when you grow up in that quite taboo kind of culture where that kind of conversation is really locked down it becomes this like what like nirvana like uh, i can't imagine how amazing it must be you completely like you, there's a mix of like extreme guilt on the one hand of like sexual desire and on the other hand complete glorification of sex like it like how amazing it must be like if it's this taboo it must be pretty fucking amazing um <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, you know, you talked about, you know, how how to have sex, even even the really basic things. There is um what we call non-consummation. So a married couple who aren't able to have penetrative sex for whatever reason. We see a lot of those clients coming through. And actually, I work with quite a lot of young um, married couples. So in their 20s. Um, who are very religious and it, they just they don't know their bodies very simply Mm. so I'm I'm doing some really simple biology lessons with them so that they know what holes they have and what purposes they serve and where they're located um and actually you know 
moving slightly away from the religious element, even when I'm seeing couples who aren't religious, who maybe have had much more liberal upbringings, who have maybe have had many partners um, and things like that. Even with those people, if I ask them, have you ever looked at your vulva or have you ever, you know, looked at your penis and testicles? They'll say, well, no, why would I do that? Mm. So people aren't, aren't, they don't know what their own bodies look like, um, let alone anything else. I do have a homework that I set um, for people sometimes, which is to use a mirror to look at their genitals and then to draw them. Okay. And I get a lot of resistance with that. I don't get it. Why do I need to do that? What's the purpose? Yeah. I'm not a very good drawer. <laughs> yeah. And then when I explain that it's just about looking at your body in a different way, exploring it, trying to understand it, most of the time I can kind of encourage them to give it a go. And I've yet to come across anyone who has done the exercise and regretted it. Yeah, I'll bet everyone's found it a real eye-opener or at least it's been a you know something to talk about or laugh about or you know I use a lot of humor in my work yeah well I can imagine that's a massive help because it like yeah I mean even taking religion out of the equation as a culture we're not we're not the best at talking about sex are we Um, absolutely no so I can imagine uh yeah bringing a bit of humor into it must must have kind of just normalizing as well yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that's, I mean, it, the, it's interesting. The thing about getting to know yourself and getting to know your body, uh, all that kind of thing, that's something that, you know, in that kind of, like my, I think my image of sex as a teenager, um, partly because of the culture I'm living in and also partly because of the religion thing, was it's it's a pretty straightforward um you know, she's, she's got a hole. I've got something that fits in that hole. You <laughs> pop it in and how hard can it be? Um, and uh, yeah, just the idea that it's not that kind of it's binary. Not that no. And actually yeah. if, if all you've ever been told is it's a hole down below, you know, there are stories of, of clients who um, aren't, aren't able to, you know, they, they believe they're having sex and they aren't able to, get pregnant because actually the the guy has been putting his penis in the belly button or the guy has been putting the penis in the clitoral hood wow, wow. Um, and things like that and so people are having quite quite uncomfortable um sexual experiences because they're just looking for something that might be a hole down below because they don't really know what they're looking for and because That's- they're not allowed to masturbate they are not discovering things for themselves either to know where to guide the partner to. Those those guys, when they find out how to do it right, man, what a night that must be for them, right? Like, Absolutely. If, Honestly. If they're going from cool. belly button, uh, wow. <laughs> that must be amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's such a huge relief for them as well. And there's a yeah. lot of... Um, expectation and you know once you get married then you're going to have babies and then they feel like they're failing they're failing their families they're failing their partners Mm. um and you know there's something wrong with them and there's all of this other stuff that kind of comes with it and actually it's it's that they haven't been given the tools that they need to to do what they're being expected to do yeah yeah well yeah and that's i mean um the the kind of that very conservative outlook on sex mm. kind of teaches it as being like a functional thing. Like we all know that it's pleasurable and that, you know, it, it, it'll feel great when, when you eventually do it. But, but really it's a kind of like, you know, uh, in and out and then she has a baby and uh, mission accomplished. Um, and the, like, you know, that, the conversation about like, even I, I think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that it's, it's safe to say that, that, kind of religious upbringing is quite patriarchal and mm-hmm. quite focused on the man and the man's urges and that kind of stuff. And nobody in that kind of uh, Christian youth group setting ever talked about like, you know, how do you make the the partner who you're with feel 
safe and comfortable, but also how do you like listen to what they want and what they will enjoy? Um, uh, you know, and Absolutely. like I remember finding out that um, most women don't orgasm from penetration. Uh, and I learned that again, quite late in life. And my reaction was kind of like, Oh God damn it. <laughs> so there's, a, there's another thing I've got to worry about. Like, <laughs> but also, you know, a lot of women don't know that. And if yeah, a lot of yeah. women don't know that, then how on earth are men supposed to know that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you can't say to your partner, I need, I need some manual stimulation or I need, I need something in addition to the penetration, then how are you supposed to know? You don't have a vagina or a vulva to know what it feels like. And there's only so much information out on, you know, out in the world. And a lot of it is, you know, really questionable. Yeah. So how are you supposed to learn about it? And actually, um, one of the things I challenge with clients, particularly um, around religion, I, I, I do um, ask a lot of uh, challenging questions and I do encourage Bible study as well as part of that because I think it's okay. so important to respect people's values and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I will have I will engage in interesting conversation and debate with them and ask them to go and look into um, things around uh, what is said in the Bible, what's up for interpretation. And actually, some, you know, I've set for homeworks, you know, how do you feel about going away and having a conversation with God about this? You know, mm. you know, having some some time during your prayer and, and seeing what comes to you. Um, but actually also, you know, God says that sex is for marriage. Okay, but if sex is for marriage and procreation, then you need to know how to do it. Yeah. So surely God wants you to know how to do it (laughs) so that you can then fulfill that wish. And, you know, how are you going to know how to do it? Well, there are, there are lots of different ways to learn. And one of them is, is by, is by doing and Mm. also by talking. Yeah. Yeah. I also get a lot of women who are frightened of pain because they've been told that their first time is going to be incredibly painful. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah, so there's a lot of, of talk about, you know, the breaking of the hymen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see a lot of um, young couples who, yeah, are terrified of, of that first time. Um, and they they think they're going to be gushing with blood and it's going to be incredibly painful. Um, and, they're, and they're dreading it. And I find that so sad. Yeah, yeah. How do you, um, I, with that, with, with people who come and see you and say that, you know, God says don't have sex before marriage, uh, and who have, um, I guess that kind of burden of guilt, uh, which, which so, so many kind of religious people have, I think that kind of, um, yeah, just, a, just a sense of like, there's something wrong with me. There's, you know, a sense of shame around sex and that kind of stuff. How, how do you, um, I guess just how do you tackle that? How do you yeah. like that? You're, you're not going to, you're not going to get them to change their religion. Um, so if they're, if they're really firm in their belief that, you know, God says sex outside of marriage is wrong. Um, yeah. What, like how, how do you address that? That must be a really difficult thing to, to get past. I think yes and no. I think some of it is helping people to come to terms with their own beliefs. So I think when we when we grow up, we um, we learn from our parents and society around us what what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. As we go through our teenage years and our young adult years, we start to challenge some of that. We start to meet people from outside of. Um, perhaps our usual community and and learn a bit more about the different ways that people live. And I think that that's really normal. So when I, when I come across people who are questioning um, or feeling in conflict about their beliefs and, and what their body is saying, I kind of, um, the first thing I do is try to understand a bit more about what their relationship with God um, and religion is. So that's really important for me to be able to kind of guide them because I don't want to ask someone to have a conversation with God if that's not a thing that that they do or that they believe in or 
that they're comfortable with. It's not a normal part of their practice. Yeah. Um, so, and also I normalized this. It is normal to challenge what you've grown up with, whether that is religion, whether that's God, whether that's your parents, <laughs> whatever that is, whether that's your culture. Um, it is normal to challenge those things. So I talk a bit about blind faith and I talk a bit about understanding why they believe in God, why they follow that religion. And I encourage them to explore that because sometimes what that does is it helps them to understand how important, why that value is so important to them. Yeah, yeah. Does yeah. that does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. I'm just thinking. Um, so, so my kind of area of study is is theology, right? So that's what I've just finished my doctorate in, and that's what I did my bachelor's degree in as well. Um, and so for me, the my shift in thinking um, around sex and sexuality came from learning to uh, articulate theology differently. Um, so rather than coming at it from a, um, uh, like sex is okay. So how do I reconcile that with my faith kind of, uh, approach? It came more from a, so from my faith beginning to recognize that actually even within my faith, sex is okay. Does that, does that make sense? So, so I'm, st- I guess I was starting from a, from a, from the opposite angle so i'm coming at it from yeah. like a as i'm reading the bible as i'm studying theology as i'm learning about my religion and my faith i'm beginning to learn that a lot of the really conservative things i was taught when i was growing up are just not not helpful and and i would say not right so the classic thing is the um you know the message that i'd had throughout my teenage years that sex outside of marriage is wrong isn't in the Bible. <laughs> it's it's not in there anywhere. Um, and actually, um, there's a brilliant. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of his. There's a theologian called James Allison who's a he's a gay Catholic theologian. He writes a lot about uh, what it means to be Catholic and gay and how he's reconciled that. You know, in a in a in a church which is kind of institutionally homophobic, how he's got his head around that and that kind of thing. And one of the things that he talks about is um, that actually the Bible, the Bible talks about, you know, uh, a man lying with another man as he lies with a woman and that kind of thing. But actually the Bible doesn't actually say anything about modern same sex loving relationships Um, because the Bible doesn't say anything about modern uh, hetero same uh, loving relationships um, because the way relationships worked when the Bible was written was fundamentally different. Like people got married for economic reasons, for cultural reasons. And that the kind of idea that you fall in love with your best friend and, you know, you, you stay faithful to that person because you love him or her and you want nothing more than to spend the rest of your life with them would have been completely alien to the people who were writing the Bible. Absolutely. Um, I mean, they got married at 12. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's something that, I mean, I don't know any Christians who are pushing for that. <laughs> you know, like no Christians are saying we should go back to marrying 12 year olds because people recognize rightly that that's, that's really fucked up. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just this weird. So, so anyway, so for me, like the, the journey was like, Oh, wow. So the Bible doesn't actually quite say what I think it says. And actually, even if it did, my relationship with the Bible, you know, believing that it's completely always literally fundamentally true in every respect, I don't have to believe that. I can still be a Christian and not believe that. Um, Absolutely. But I think I needed to go through that before I could change my thinking about sex. So if I had come to you as a teenager, if I'd come to a sex therapist when I was kind of 15 or 16 Mm. and, uh, you know, you or a sex therapist had encouraged me to think more positively about sex, I would have probably left feeling like, well, of course they would say that because they're not Christian. Um, and (laughs) they they don't get, you know, the, the Christian thing. Mm. And I guess, but I, I went on a big waffly tangent there, but I guess that's the point that I would like when like, that must be such a difficult thing to get past because, you know, if you, 
for for particularly like like i say a very kind of fundamentalist kind of view of christianity mm. would just say well devika's views are not relevant because she's not one of us um Absolutely. And I, and I'm very frank about, um, particularly with very religious couples, I'm very open about, you know, my, my religious, um, views, um, because I do think it's important, um, to the work and because it might be very important for them. But actually what I do is I use, I use that lack of knowledge actually to drive the work. So as a therapist, you cannot be, um, an expert in everything it's not possible mm -hmm. so I I haven't ever done bible study um, and that is why actually you know inviting them to go away and do that work is really powerful because they and this is the really key thing with therapy it's actually getting them to do the work yeah it's asking them to do the exploring them to do the discovery and have those realizations and what it does with some people and, and this does happen with very religious um people is it actually strengthens their religion and their relationship with god and that it can be really powerful for them and it you know it can be very healing for them and for others it's about coming to terms with that their relationship with god and religion is perhaps different to what they had thought it might be or what they wanted it to be or what their parents wanted it to be yeah. and coming to terms with that and accepting this new version of themselves and, and that relationship. Mm -hmm. There's a huge lesson in there, I think for, um, uh, I was going to say Christian youth workers, but actually anybody working with people like not necessarily youth workers and not necessarily Christians, but just the idea of empowering people to come to their own answers. Mm. Um, I think, uh, so, so again, growing up in a Christian youth group and then as an adult being a Christian youth worker for the, for the majority of my adult life. Um, rec I recognize that a lot of what Christian youth work looks like is look, I, the youth worker have studied theology um, and I, uh, I am the expert here. So let me tell you kids what's right and what's wrong. I'll tell you what's what. Um, so you don't have to worry too much about it. Um, but actually that's really disempowering. Um, and it, it does the, it shuts down creative thought because it's just kind of like, well, ultimately there is a right and a wrong answer and I'll be the one to tell you what it is. And obviously you do it in a nice way with yeah. pizza and table tennis and the <laughs> talk shop and that kind of stuff. But ultimately you're kind of going, well, look, this is what the Bible says. So, so this is what you're Actually, I would do. say that school does that as well. Is it, you know, it, yeah. you go to school, part of what they say you do at school is, is be socialized and learn how to behave appropriately. Um, but actually what it does is it, it just shut down a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, and and as adults, then we really we end up in this place of conflict where we we don't want to move out of conformity because it doesn't feel safe. We kind of always feel like that school kid that's about to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so the therapy room is really a space where you give people permission to go out and start exploring that creativity again. And the first yeah, thing yeah. I say to my couples and and my individuals in the first session, I say that they are the experts on their relationship. Um, I can't fix them. I'm not a magician. Mm -hmm. um, they have to do the work. My my role is to guide them and and be a partner with them on this part of their journey. Um, but there's only so much that I can do. The majority of it has to come from from them. And I also kind of say, you know, when when we're done here, I don't want you to need me. I want you to be able to go off and never come back again. That's my goal. once um so there's a i don't know if you've ever heard of there's a music producer called rick rubin um in america who uh did lots of like uh 
like very, very contemporary, grungy, anti-establishment kind of music. So he produced like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Beastie Boys, like groups like that. Um, and then towards the end of uh, Johnny Cash's life, he produced five or six albums with Johnny Cash, uh, the American albums. And people were a bit like, that's an odd mix that this really kind of odd, eclectic, anti-establishment kind of guy is working with Johnny Cash, you know, country Western singer, uh, very religious, um, very kind of traditional Americana kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in an interview with Rick Rubin, he he said at one point that he was asked about Johnny Cash's faith because Rick Rubin is like he like he's uh, I don't know what he'd call himself. I guess kind of spiritually, kind of new agey, kind of open to all sorts of stuff that Johnny Cash wouldn't have been. And in an interview with Rick Rubin, they said like how how do you how do you and Johnny Cash work when you're talking about faith and religion and that kind of stuff. And he said, um, Johnny believes what he believes so sincerely and so powerfully that when he says grace before we eat a meal together, it doesn't matter that I don't believe it because he believes it so sincerely. Um, And that's like, that's a really cool and a beautiful thing. Absolutely. The, the, The flip side of that, however, is that there's lots of people who really sincerely and very passionately believe that because of the choices I've made in life, I'm probably going to hell. Um, (laughs) And that's not, that's not beautiful. (laughs) That that sucks. Um, And I've got friends who um, have more or less been kind of blacklisted by people in their old churches um, because, you know, they've taken decisions in life that the church doesn't approve of and, the church is just kind of, okay, well, we want nothing to do with this person anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the side of religion that I really struggle with because it feels so unkind and so unforgiving Mm -hmm. and, and so just not, not very generous. Yeah. um, To actually the, the struggles that exist around just being, just existing as a human is so hard. The baseline is, is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you start to add in, you know, all of the man-made stuff, yeah, it just it's, it gets harder and harder. And the crazy thing is, you know, you, you use the words judgmental and unforgiving. And if there's two things that Jesus was pretty clear about, <laughs> it's about don't judge people and forgive people. Like those are like pretty high up on Jesus's like Absolutely. hot topics. So that's the kind of stuff that I'd say, you know, if a client was being very self-deprecating about something, I would I would challenge that. And I would say um, something along the lines of but my understanding of of God and Jesus is that they they are able to forgive. And there's something about repentance. Can you explain some of that to me? And and I invite them to tell me what what their understanding of that is and what kind of talk that through and get to a point where perhaps they can find a way to forgive themselves whether that's through just <laughs> accepting it you know radically accepting it and forgiving themselves or if it's that they feel that they need to say a prayer or have a conversation with someone or whatever that, that action might be mm-hmm. um, and then you know meet back after they've done that and and see what that's felt like for them and and I have actually challenged clients in the past who have been um self-deprecating and I've, I've talked about forgiveness and and I said you know do you believe that God has forgiven you and they said yes and I said but you, it seems to me you haven't forgiven yourself and they said no and I said so what makes you more important than God if God has forgiven you surely you should accept that <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And they laughed, and and it I, it was I was being challenging in a in a funny way. Yeah. Um, but you know what what does make you your belief more important than what you believe that God believes? You know. Yeah. At some points, it does become a bit circular. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, so I have in uh, probably just two or three times in my life I've done confession, um, mm-hmm. which uh, we don't call it confession in the Anglican Church, but that's basically what it is. Um, but you know, you you and and every time I found it really therapeutic and really healing because it's a kind of moment to say, 
okay, I fucked up and here's how I fucked up. And I just want to get this off my chest and talk to somebody about it. So it's not just eating away at me. Mm. But then also what's, what's kind of part of the healing process is the kind of act of penance. So the priest will kind of say, okay, well go, go and do this as an act of penance. And it's not because uh, like, and the, the really important theological point isn't that God is demanding, you know, you've messed up, therefore you must pay the price. Because that's not the the whole point of Christianity is that the price has been paid. Like it's okay. It doesn't matter how many times you mess up, Um, but it's a way of dealing with your own sense of guilt and sense of shame. Like, okay, I need to figure this out. I need to, I need to, I need to get rid of the sense of guilt and shame and doing something practical. Even for non-religious people, you know, what it, it, what it is, is it's, it's ritual, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So even for non-religious people, it might be that I invite them to write a letter and then throw it in the bin or to light a candle and think about something or to kind of do a drawing or we might do a bit of a guided, a guided meditation Mm -hmm. where we kind of work with colors and shapes or something it's about that sense of ritual and that process actually yeah 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 of of acknowledging that this thing happened Mm -hmm. but that it happened and that's okay yeah and yeah absolutely and what what happens next is more important than than what did happen there's an amazing film called the mission have you ever seen that no i've not it's um it's it's quite an old film now. It's got Robert De Niro in it and uh, a few other kind of big names. But basically, it's a I think it's a true story. Um, or certainly kind of rooted in truth that was happening around the time of like a Christian mission being built in South America and like getting in with this local community, this local tribe, and that kind of stuff. And one of the characters, Robert De Niro's character, is uh, he's basically a slave trader. So he uh, he he kind of plays this. A uh, rich white guy who visits, you know, infiltrates these kind of remote tribes and then basically kidnaps them to sell them into slavery. And he has this moment of um, like everything falls apart uh, and he ends up in prison and everything's gone wrong. And he he kind of has this moment of, I guess, repentance of like, I, I, I've gone so wrong. Mm. and i want to get it right and he gets a visit by by uh, the priest um mm-hmm. and the priest invites him to go to the mission and spend some time there but they have to trek through this like jungle and up waterfalls and it's a you know it's a big long mission to get there so they do this walk and the whole time robert de niro is carrying like a massive suit of armor in like a net so it's like he's got this extra weight that he's mm-hmm. pulling um, and at one point, one of the kind of priests cuts the suit of armor, like the rope, so that Robert De Niro can like walk freely. And he goes back then, Robert De Niro's character, and ties it back onto him and carries on the walk. And out out of his earshot, the priests then have a conversation, which is like, we can't let him do this to himself. And then the kind of the main priest uh, goes, he has to do this for himself. Mm. This is his way of working out his guilt. And then there's this amazing scene where they like, they finally get to the tribe and one of the, the um, kids from the tribe runs up to Robert De Niro's character holding a knife. And you think like he's recognized him, he's going to kill him. um, But then he uses the knife to cut the suit of armor and to free him. And that's the moment of freedom for Robert De Niro's character that like the people who he hurt have forgiven him. So at this point he can forgive himself. Um, and anyway, that was, a, again, I went off on a bit of a waffly tangent then. But, but <laughs> Nothing wrong just, with a waffly tangent. <laughs> um, but yeah, just that thing of like guilt, you know, I think guilt and shame are bad things and they're not helpful emotions, but at the same time, they they are there and you can't just flick a switch to turn them so off. Well, actually, I, you know, I, I would challenge that. And I, so one of the things I do talk about a lot is, um, is about emotions. And in society, we do often talk about, you know, bad or unhelpful emotions being things like anger, sadness, guilt, shame, but actually emotions send us a message. Um, and our emotions are, are always trying to tell us something about ourselves. So I would encourage people to lean into those um I'm air quoting here those negative emotions and say well what what is that guilt telling you what what is it actually saying a- about 
what's happened? Is it telling you that one of your boundaries has been crossed? Is it talking to your core values? You know, where, where is that going? Where is that hurting you and why? What is it that we need to visit here? That's so really think, interesting. Yeah, I think emotions are really important, actually. I think we we really underestimate how important they are. Mm. And even the, you know, air quotes again, negative ones. They're always trying to tell us something about what's happening in the world around us and how we are reacting to it and what we need to address. Um so yeah, I'm going to I'm going to so, challenge you there. <laughs> no, yeah, that, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did because you're absolutely right. Um I I yeah, I completely agree with you. I guess what am I trying to say? There's a, there's a difference I guess between the emotions of guilt and shame and the actions of absolutely. being shamed of, yeah. of um yeah, where other people have made you feel shamed and that's, I guess that's what I'm talking about as being an unhelpful thing. When you're carrying shame that other people have given you, that they've made you feel like you're less than. And again, this comes to what we learn growing up. So we don't learn about boundaries. We don't learn about um, understanding what's ours and what someone else's. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. go into adulthood carrying other people's feelings. And for some people, it happens very naturally that they learn what's theirs and what's someone else's and they are very boundaried. And for other people, it, it doesn't. But it's yeah. something we don't talk about, actually. Yeah, yeah. No one teaches us. How, how do we feel what's ours and what's someone else's? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially when it comes to emotions, I think. And also yeah. when it comes to a relationship and, and sexual relationships as well particularly where there's, you know, a, a dysfunction occurring. So whether that's um, a female dysfunction or a male dysfunction, you know, in a relationship, where is, you know, where is this block? We can have an emotional block. We can have a physical block. Mm. Um, but actually understanding whether that's your block or someone else's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or your parents, you know, sometimes it's parental messages that are blocking you now in your relationship from moving forward. It could be grief, can be yeah. a really big block sexually as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So years ago, I remember being at like a conference and the guy who was running the conference um, said something which which has really stuck with me, which is um, the question is never what's wrong with me or mm. what's wrong with that other person. It's always what's gone wrong in my relationship with this person or in my communication with this person. So it's basically saying you as an individual, whoever you are, whatever you've done, are not. there's nothing fundamentally flawed about you, but somewhere in your relationships, whether that's with your parents, whether that's with your lover, your friends, you, you know, your church, whatever it is, somewhere in your relationships, something has got damaged and your way of relating to people and connecting to people um, has got damaged. Mm -hmm. But it's not a problem in you. It's a problem in, in your relationships, um, yeah. which kind of makes sense to me. But Absolutely. I'm not a that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I do a lot of work with um, couples in, in helping them to understand why they've chosen each other. So one of the things I find really fascinating um, about how, how we choose the partners we choose um, is, is actually to do with, um, is actually to do with evolution and nature <laughs> and survival of the species. So when you first meet someone, you have, you know, you always hear about all of the the levels of uh, chemicals that are kind of going through your body and how it kind of feels like a like a high um, and your behavior can become quite strange, <laughs> can mm -hmm. stop eating, sleeping, and you can become quite infatuated with a with a person. Yeah. What's really interesting is that love um, or those feelings encourages us to bond with someone who is opposite to us. Yeah, this is quite primal because actually it's that we need a partner that complements us mm -hmm. so that as a pair, you're a strong unit who can survive. But then the purpose of all of those uh, chemicals going through your brain is that you can't see their flaws. So after the initial stages of the relationship wear away, that's when you start to see kind of the real side of, of that person. 
Mm. I'm really fascinated by this idea that we're really just drawn to people who are not like us at all. (laughs) Yeah, 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 definitely. That makes a lot of sense.